welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm your host, Danny, and I'm delighted to say that after a short break, A Language I Love Is is back and beginning the second part of this first series. So, to kick off, we're diving into the life and language of medieval Europe and joining Dr. Charles Rowe to hear all about the complex and fascinating story of medieval Latin. Okay, so today I am thrilled to say I have joining me all the way from the University of Leeds, Dr. Charles Rowe. Charlie is there at the University of Leeds, a teaching fellow in medieval Latin. And I'm delighted to say that he has volunteered, or rather he has been volunteered, uh, to come join me today to talk about one language that he loves and spends a lot of time with during his day job. Um, so, Charlie, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm well. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I think that you've been listening to the episode so far, so I don't need to go through the format for your benefit. But for new listeners, A Language I Love Is works in the following format. So this episode uh, between me and Charlie is all about getting to know him, but also about getting to know one particular language. Uh, I'll be asking a few questions, building up a bit of a language profile, and then asking Charlie for his uh features of the language that he has a particular fondness for. So, let's start off, let's answer the question. Charlie, what is a language that you love? A language I love is medieval Latin. This might seem a strange answer to some people, from what I'm going to say, because I'm about to say that medieval Latin isn't in any internal way a language. You've intrigued me already. Let's unpack that. First and foremost, in this initial language bio, what on earth do you mean by that statement, that you've come on a language podcast to talk about a language that isn't a language? I mean, that's fantastic. We're off to a great start. Let's talk about what we mean by medieval Latin, this particular term. I think the listeners will be familiar with Latin, the language of Julius Caesar and Cicero and Augustus. But what's medieval Latin and how is it different to the Latin that listeners may be more familiar with? Great. That's really the question I want to get into. So the heart of what I mean by medieval Latin isn't a language is that there is no linguistic difference between medieval Latin and classical Latin. The difference is really historical here. When we think about Latin, we usually think about the Latin of an ancient Rome, including Julius Caesar and Cicero. And that is something which is really deeply enshrined in our society as a valued period of Latin, which is available in a sort of valued, prestigious body of work. Now, Latin didn't stop being used at the end of that period. Latin continued being used up until the 18th century quite regularly by quite a lot of people in European society. Now, our view of this is really distinctly shaped by the fact that in the 15th century, an intellectual movement we call the Renaissance modelled itself on the Latin of Caesar and Cicero and that generation and elevated that particular body of Latin writing as a prestige form of the language, which it encouraged anyone with a good education to go and imitate and to pick up. And that's a view which has stayed with us now. So I teach medieval history. One of the things I often ask historians in their first year of a history degree is, why can't you do ancient history in a British university as run by the history department? Why would that have to be a separate specialism, which you do in a joint honours degree. And that's because the sort of intellectual establishments of Western Europe have such 
such an investment in ancient Rome, the Rome of Caesar and Cicero and the languages and the period of that as a particular object of study. And the history of our understanding of Latin has really been shaped by the emphasis placed on that ancient version of Latin as opposed to any other version of Latin. And then the ability of people after the 15th century to deliberately imitate that ancient form of Latin. So medieval Latin, the Latin of the Middle Ages, is the Latin of the period between the 15th century Renaissance and that classical period, which was programmatically discarded by writers in the 15th and 16th centuries as part of an intellectual agenda. It's a bit of a flawed term because actually it isn't true that in the 15th century, everyone suddenly started writing the the Latin of Cicero and Virgil. That development was partial and incomplete. and There are plenty of forms of Latin which look like medieval Latin, which carry on up until the 18th century. So medieval Latin is a historical phenomenon. It's it's a type of Latin which has not been valued by the kind of establishment which teaches Latin. Would it be fair to say then, and this may be quite a crude chronology, that the Renaissance marks, if not the end, then the beginning of the end for the medieval Latin period? I don't know if you agree with that. And secondly, when might medieval Latin begin? You mentioned that, you know, there is this transition and, you know, the age of Cicero and Caesar comes to an end, but Latin continues. When might you, as someone who works with medieval Latin, say that we're now in the medieval era and in the era of medieval Latin. So as I said, I don't think there is a hard stop in the 15th century at all. And there are definitely types of Latin writing, which you'd, if you went and read, you'd see not very much changed in the 15th century. So for example, the kind of Latin people write documents about legal rights over land, for instance, they'd write a very formulaic, very conservative type of Latin, which was developed very much in the heart of what we're calling the medieval period. And that carries on. That carries on until now. If you go and read the foundation charter of some kind of public institution, that won't be written in a classical variety of Latin. So I don't think there is a hard stop at the end of what we normally call the Middle Ages in the 15th century. There are a lot of varieties of Latin going on between the Roman period and the 15th century that it's quite hard to say, you know, oh, here's here's the essence of medieval Latin. It's actually a very wide range of different ways of using Latin situated in different times and places. Yeah, as you're saying, for the um, when did medieval Latin start? So what's the end of this Ciceronic Caesar period? Um, that's a really good question because the story we're often told about the classical world is that it ends sometime around the fifth century with the death of the last person to call himself Roman emperor in the West and with the establishment of much localized forms of political power. Now that's actually... Uh, a political story, really. Um, it doesn't say very much about language. And if you look at the kind of Latin people look at in classics departments, I don't want to generalize horribly and offend all the classicists, um, but largely it is limited to the first century BC to the end of the second century AD. So the kind of classical curriculum of Latin doesn't get very far beyond 200 AD. There isn't any hard linguistic line which makes someone stop writing classical Latin in 200 AD. The reason why there's probably a break in 200 AD uh, is that there is very little Latin surviving from the 3rd century AD. So it's quite a natural place to sit back and end your classical Latin course. There's a bit of a dip in Latin, which then uh, starts to become more common in the 5th century or the end of the 4th century. But there's no hard edge about when this Latin becomes the wider range of expression available in medieval Latin from classical Latin. What the hard edges largely come from the limits of what the classical curriculum has been.
on the ground at least, or perhaps in the minds of speakers at that time, would you say that there is perhaps a gradual parting of the ways between what's being written and what's being spoken? Do you think it's it's perhaps a point that the Romance languages, so things like French and Spanish and Italian, which develop out of Latin, they sort of split off from the standard language at some point. So could it be that medieval Latin is born when people are no longer speaking Latin as their first language, where it's really, really diverged from what they're learning from their parents as infants? Is that fair to say? That's a really great question. And it touches on some uh, very complicated problems, in which I think the research sort of is still going. There's a bit of uncertainty about how far classical Latin as a written idiom reflects what people were speaking in the Roman Empire. So there are a series of ways you might get taught to pronounce classical Latin, that is the sort of Caesar, Cicero Latin. But it's not always clear when that pronunciation would have happened to the nearest generation and where that would have happened. So there would have been variation in people's spoken Latin all the way through Latin, and it wouldn't have been the same as the habits of written Latin. So it can be quite hard to say when people stop speaking the Latin they write. But granted, I'm going to accept, of course, there is a difference between a Romance language and the things which are available in written Latin. And it's very hard to pin down when that happens, mostly because there's very little incentive to start writing a Romance language when you could write Latin and speak a Romance language. So the problem you start to get when you're drawing line about what are people in the territory speaking languages derived from Latin speaking is that our body of evidence is actually pretty tricky to date. We can work out what was going on very well from um, linguistic changes happening between Latin and the Romance languages. The tricky thing is pinning down at what stage that's happening and when you think someone's no longer speaking Latin. Right. Yeah. No, that's very, very fair as well. And, and and the situation on the ground is going to be different from how we view it with our modern perspective as well. Um, I once had to try and write this down in some written work and I, I coined the phrase, which I've stuck to to this day, which is that the Romance languages, i.e. something separate from Latin, were only born when someone finally noticed. Like it, it, it's, it's a matter of perception, essentially, that you've gone like, hang on, whoa, this thing that we are here in northern France in the court of Charlemagne, the thing that we're speaking of the day to day to one another is really not what we're reading in these texts. And perhaps it's a matter of kind of backward perception. That's a brilliant case. And that's a, because they would be the ninth century when that backward perception emerges in the context of Charlemagne. Now, our famous body of evidence for that is a couple of oaths given by Charlemagne's sons, which are recorded in the language they delivered them. One son delivers it in something like Old High German, and the other one delivers it in something which is derived from Latin, but isn't Latin. <laughs> um, and we have the wording written down of exactly what he said in this non-Latin which I guess we might talk about as a romance, which could develop into something like French. The other interesting part of that as a context, of course, that's very shortly after the period when we start seeing Latin be written by people who do not speak Romance languages. So that generation are going to start noticing the difference between their linguistic usage, because in Charlemagne's context, you have a lot of English people, you have a lot of high German speakers, you have a lot of low German speakers, and you have a lot of Irish speakers who are writing Latin. Indeed, the majority of the people writing influential Latin in the ninth century might be speakers of other non-Romance languages. So there's going to be this new social attention to Latin as a written form, as distinct from Latin as a spoken form, just because of what's happening in the society. That starts, I suppose, in Ireland, because Ireland is the first place to start writing Latin as a society which doesn't speak Latin. <laughs> 
Wonderful. That's fascinating. And you've, you've given a hint there already of the prestige and the utility of medieval Latin. And it really is the, the dominant language, the prestige language, the lingua franca of most of Europe or perhaps Western Europe during the Middle Ages. So we have established so far that the beginning and the end, the hard edges, are not particularly hard when it comes to medieval Latin. It's pretty difficult to define. I'm just wondering, though, that if you were to perhaps zoom forward from the beginnings of medieval Latin to somewhere in the centre of that, let's let's you know, pick a date, a date of your choosing, and say, right, we're, we're firmly now in the era of medieval Latin. What's it like? What are the differences between medieval Latin and classical Latin? Would you, as a scholar, and would other classicists or somebody with a passing knowledge of Latin, be able to say, this is different, and this is medieval? Yeah. So I'm going to go for the 13th century, just as a point right in the middle of the Middle Ages, getting towards late Middle Ages. But it's the period, so after 1200, just the amount of written material survives of any kind in the West of Europe increases exponentially. So you have so much stuff. Now, that in itself is a different from classics, because in part of uh, the nature of classical Latin is it's dictated by a very small body of writing. In the 13th century, we have so much Latin surviving. Most scholars don't know how much there is. They don't know what's in it. No one could know. We have archives and collections full of material. What you'd notice is that the Latin used is really, really different depending on what people are writing and where they're writing. So some of the Latin you might not even notice was 13th century Latin. So, for instance, I spent some time with the letters of the scholar and Bishop Robert Grosstest. He talks about all sorts of medieval things. He talks about Christianity a lot. He talks about places in England. But actually, if you looked at his syntax, you wouldn't immediately go, this is weird, if you're used to reading Cicero. He writes quite a lucid, classicizing Latin. He's read a lot of Cicero. Um, he's read a lot of, he's probably read all the classical writers, and he's read a lot of Seneca, certainly. Um, and he writes quite a lot like them syntactically. His lexus will be different. There are things he might do differently, but you wouldn't go, oh, this is terribly different. But if you started looking at the writing coming out of the universities, where Grosstest actually taught, you would find people doing things like writing notes on the church fathers in really compressed Latin, which will use It'll use strange technical terms, so words you just wouldn't for ideas which a classical Latin writer would want to paraphrase to explain to ordinary people. But here you've got a body of scholars who are used to jargon and they like jargon. So um, the famous case of this is in the beginning of the 14th century. Actually, it might be earlier, but certainly popular in the beginning of the 14th century to use the term hexaitas for a thisness to describe the individual thisness of any individual thing, because that is a problem which emerges from Aristotle. So they want a word for this philosophical problems that talk about the thisness of stuff. Hexaitas is exactly the kind of term a medieval scholar would develop to express a philosophical problem. And the scholarship can get very compressed and very hard to read if you're not into this kind of philosophy and you don't know what they're talking about, because they use a lot of jargon. On the other hand, their sentences will get much less complicated. Their syntax will be short. They might even start using word order, which is more like a vernacular language, because that's what they also know how to do, and that's the easiest way they construct a sentence. So university Latin will be totally different from the Latin of someone who's trying to write a good letter to impress someone. You might find another kind of Latin entirely if you start to look at legal records. So that plurality of uses of Latin and the kind of words people use, the kind of sentences they make, would be really striking to someone used to classical Latin. 
Right. Interesting. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good corrective as well to any kind of thinking that medieval Latin is strictly opposite. It's strictly different to classical Latin. It's not. There is a great sense of variation. But I'm interested, though, you mentioned vernacular. So you mentioned the everyday languages of people at this time. I'm wondering, because I'm coming at this as a linguist, in terms of linguistics, we would think about this in terms of people learning a language which they did not know as children. It's a second language, a learned language. It's you know a foreign language, essentially to uh, to people across Western Europe. So I'm wondering then, do you see significant interference from people's mother tongues? Are people's everyday languages affecting medieval Latin? You mentioned in terms of word order, syntax, that that is going on. But, but is it going on to such a level that you, as a scholar of medieval Latin, could actually say, I know where this text was from. This is a British Latin text, or this is a Bohemian Latin text. Is that kind of interference from mother tongues getting through to the Latin to such an extent? Or am I really, am I overthinking things? No, that's a really great question. And my answer is going to be slightly hesitant, which is, yes, there are definitely places where you can go, I think this person was thinking in this language, but they're not as common as you might think. The place where it really becomes obvious is there are subtle variations in orthography. So in the way people might spell words, which tend to go with the community you're writing in, and some of them are regionalizable. So if you've got C before an I, you might find that has become an S or a Z in French or German because it's being pronounced Z, um, but that will never happen in Italian because it's being it's moving to Ch. So there are things like little things like that, but we're actually the orthography is quite standard. This is, these are just small ticks and habits. And actually, the other yeah, the other side of this is this is a society where most people who write are going to spend all their time in a school environment from quite young childhood where they're probably speaking Latin all the time. So they will have Latin as a very good second language. It's probably not young enough for it to be an L1 properly, but there's a bit of a debate about how we want to consider this. But yeah, so we shouldn't expect them to be making common syntactical transfers from the vernacular into Latin all the time. The other side of that is also there are things which medieval Latinists get used to doing. So medieval people who write Latin get used to doing, which no one would ever do in classical Latin or might not do very often. So there are, again, syntactical habits which you might pick up from quite good Latin, which you've learned all your life, which are not very commonly represented in classical writers. A classic example of this might be some writers are a little bit shy of result clauses using ut and the subjunctive, for those of you who've done Latin, very common in classical Latin. Some medieval writers might like to put a gerundive in there with ad. So instead of um, ambulets that I might walk, you might find they've said something like ad ambulandam. Where are they getting these? Where are they getting this from? If it's not interference from their mother tongues, where is this kind of where are these novelties and these innovations in medieval Latin from? Are they just being spread around the community of Europe? Yeah, they'll have read other people who use them, and they will have been taught by people who probably haven't spent their whole time reading Cicero to realise that that's something which Cicero actually doesn't do. But yeah, and it's actually very interesting looking at the fifteenth century and seeing the extent to which the people we call humanists, so people are trying to create this Ciceronic Latin as a standard, people like Lorenzo Valla or Poggio Bracciolini, they have to spend a lot of time 
immersing themselves in Cicero to work out exactly what Cicero does and doesn't do. And you get these great sort of angry letter exchanges. Erasmus makes fun of people um, by writing Latin, which appears to be non-Ciceronic, but which is derived entirely from passages of Cicero people don't read very often. To make fun of this sort of pretension that you can immerse yourself in Cicero to write suddenly write correct classical Latin. But it takes a lot of training to iron out all the accretions in the system, which may not be used by writers of the first century BC to the second century AD. But that's fair enough, right? That's just the context, the historical context that these people are living in. We have the internet today, so we can just Google, did Cicero use this phrase? And there would be some, you know, kindly classicist on some, uh, you know, forum somewhere who can tell us yes or no. But if you're, say, you know, if you're a scholar working in northern Germany, you have access to, I don't know, how many texts of Cicero? Two? Well, I might challenge that. I mean, that's one of the other things which is slightly underestimated is that actually medieval people read quite a lot of Cicero and they had quite good access to Cicero. What they really lacked, unfortunately, are the speeches of Cicero, which are what became valuable in the 15th century and became the marker of Cicero's finest style. So they had quite a lot of Cicero and they read quite a lot of Cicero and Seneca. So they could quite easily imagine what it would be like to write that kind of prose. They just weren't obsessive enough that they would sit down and eliminate any feature which wasn't represented by this sort of writing. Right, fair enough. I mean, they've got things to be getting on with. So yeah, I understand that. I'm just wondering, though, could you go into a little bit more detail about who is using medieval Latin? Who's writing it? Who's speaking it? You've mentioned one person so far who was a bishop in medieval Western Europe, pretty much at the top of the food chain. But who else is using Latin? Is it is it exclusive? Well, probably everyone's using Latin because one of the general requirements um, sort of in the bureaucracy of the church was that you had to teach everyone the Lord's Prayer and the Ave Maria and probably either the Ten Commandments or the Creed. And it's likely that that would have been done quite a lot of the time in Latin, as Latin is the most common form you would have heard this during church services, because all the church services were in Latin. So that's already opened a spectrum where your local vicar speaks quite a lot of Latin uh, every day of the week and where the odds are you know a few phrases from it. But that doesn't mean you have a grasp of the language. You might know a few lexical terms. You might be able to put some syntax together or it might just be, you know, nothing at all. And we have this, you know, it's very hard to get beyond the sort of um, Protestant enlightenment image of the Middle Ages being full of people who say prayers which they don't understand. I mean, the odds are you would start to pick up what paternoster means after a few weeks, I think. But that's not really an understanding of Latin as a language. And it's quite possible that there were plenty of vicars who didn't have a great understanding of Latin as a language and knew how to do their job. There's still a very wide variety of people who would use Latin quite often. So there's been some quite good research on um, the extent to which knights, for instance, were familiar with Latin when it applied to their landholding and their legal rights. So they would know enough Latin to understand what their charters said so that they could go and take someone to court if they needed to. So there's a lot of people who have a who have a limited working knowledge of a particular kind of Latin in society. Then, of course, you do hit, like in any kind of pre-modern agricultural society, there is a level at which you hit a specialised elite who are literate. And they are probably very, very literate in Latin, some of them quite frighteningly literate in Latin. I see, I see. So these are, I'm imagining, you know, priests, monks in particular, bishops. Yeah. Uh, later on, you've got, as you sort of hit the 12th, 13th century, that will move to um, members of canonries, priests in towns, university scholars, civil servants. In some places, like Italy, you'll find quite a lot of lay people who are very, very good at Latin. 
because they have a very strong urban culture, very strong mercantile culture where it becomes acceptable to read the classics and they've got quite a lot of obvious continuity with the classics. So if you look at the 14th century Italy of Dante and Petrarch, there are quite a lot of people like Dante who have no kind of church role but are actually pretty good Latinists. So it really is percolating through society. This is not a language that is dead, and it's not a language that is limited to a select few. Perhaps to begin with, but as the Middle Ages proceed, we are getting a lot of Latin through society. Fantastic. Great. So I feel that we're in a really good place now vis-a-vis medieval Latin in terms of what this language is, what this language isn't, when it starts, when it doesn't start, when it ends, when it doesn't end as well. But it's complicated as well. And I think you've got that across. There's a lot to talk about behind this, you know, two word simple label of medieval Latin. But I want to turn away now from the language and turn the spotlight onto you, Charlie, and just to talk about how on earth did you come to be so expert in medieval Latin? What's your journey to it? Because it's not something that we get really taught in schools. As you've said, if you get taught Latin schools, it tends to be the the classical stuff of Cicero and Caesar. So what's your journey to medieval Latin? If you can tell us about that. So I did do some Latin at school, uh, (laughs) but I wasn't a dedicated Latinist at school at all. I was reasonably decent at it, but wasn't that interested in Cicero or Caesar. So it just didn't speak to me. Uh, But one day there was a moment, a sort of prophetic moment, when in the back of the textbook with a friend got bored and found out there was an appendix called Medieval Latin. And this seemed to be an appendix which told you some of the spelling variations. Uh, It told you that you could break classic secondary school Latin rules, like that you, you can't translate dux as duke, even though it is the origin of Duke, you have to translate it as leader. And you have to say princeps, not princeps, and you have to translate it as leader and not prince. And suddenly this part of the book's telling me, you need to translate this as Duke and prince, and you can translate them dux and princeps if you like, because that's probably what people did. The translations it gave you were sort of bizarre things about abbots knocking down people's windmills and debating over property in East Anglia. So I thought, well, this is a different world of Latin, um, which I would be having more fun if I was in with this sort of Robin Hood edge of sort of strange um, local history. But I kind of noticed that and sort of put it aside uh, and didn't end up getting back there until quite a long time later. Instead, I got very interested at some point in the amount of old English writing in medieval French. So the amount of medieval French was used in medieval England. So medieval England had a very strange variety of French called Anglo-Norman, which probably deserves an episode of this too, because it's great. The material in it really hasn't been treated very much by researchers. So it's a really fertile field of untouched stuff, sort of from the 12th to 14th centuries, particularly at the end of that period. So I sort of started to move towards that. But the more I looked at it, the more I found that the stuff I was interested in was actually translations of older Latin stuff. And it was part, this was all part of a much wider range of language use in medieval England. So I think the more I started to look at texts from medieval England, the more I realized, huh, most people were thinking in Latin. Most people were writing Latin a lot of time. They were speaking Latin. And there really is a very limited body of work on this material, mostly because it's never had a departmental home. It doesn't live in the classics department. It's not the main occupation of the history department, although it is my main occupation in the history department. Um, <laughs> and it's not its not really ever been part of a vernacular language department, except for when people are working on something which is a translation from it. 
so I sort of realized there's just so much which hasn't been done here. And it was mainstream to the people using it. This was the heart of things which we don't really understand in the Middle Ages. So what then would be the process of coming to learn medieval Latin and coming to know it? How might somebody follow in your footsteps, um, at least within the context of the UK? So there are a few ways you can do this. If you're already doing classical Latin, there's no point stopping. Um, You just have to put up with a lot of people telling you about Caesar and Cicero. I don't know if you're an academic, um, the best way to manoeuvre your career, but there are plenty of ways you could work on classical Latin and look at the medieval body of evidence as part of that job. So certainly there's no reason to get out of the classical Latin institution uh, unless you really want to do that anyway. But if you don't have a background in classical Latin, and for most people that is true now, and for most of the people I teach medieval Latin, uh, that's true. Some medieval master's courses, if you do them, will offer you training in Latin. To be honest, they mostly will offer you training in some Latin, but you probably want to do some digging on how extensive that is. So if you do a master's in medieval studies or medieval history, Latin's usually an option, but it may be very basic. At Leeds, we do an awful lot of medieval Latin. So you can always <laughs> come and do a master's with us. But there are other universities. There are some universities very much focus on medieval Latin as part of your master's training. Some don't. Your options are even more limited if you do a vernacular language. I think your best option there would be if you are doing postgraduate work in a vernacular language in the Middle Ages, you may find that you can audit some medieval Latin training offered by the history department and you can enter the hilarious world of cross-departmental support for necessary research. I have seen cases where you don't get told about the Latin classes if you do medieval English or medieval French, which is ridiculous. If you're just interested, you could do worse than picking up a textbook on classical Latin, because I'm saying you've got to start somewhere. And a lot of medieval people have a very classical standard. So don't don't be afraid to approach classical Latin. I teach from a classical textbook and supply extra material and talk about interesting things on the side. Then you can start moving towards a very classical but medieval writer like Bede. So having got to know a little bit about you now and a little bit about the research and what you do with medieval Latin, it's clear that you are expert in this language and that you have you know, a great love for it. It is your bread and butter, which is fantastic. Um, within all of that medieval Latin, which you study on a daily basis, if you had to choose one feature of this language, which isn't a language, what would it be? What is one thing that you love about medieval Latin? Okay, my favourite thing is a piece of the history of Latin, really, which is if you go and read a classical Latin text, with very few exceptions, you are reading it edited out of a medieval manuscript because generally books don't survive from the classical world. Uh, They're written on papyrus and it takes an awful lot of work to look after papyrus well enough for it to still be around now, except in the very dry conditions of Egypt which produces fantastic lost texts in papyrus because they've just survived being thrown away in the sand or buried in something. But generally, papyrus doesn't survive from the ancient world. So if you go and read a lot of the works of Cicero or Caesar, you are reading a text which a scholar has reconstructed from a book which is most likely to date back to Charlemagne. So there was a huge project of uh, book copying and book production in the ninth century, a lot of the time in Northern Europe, by people who were learning Latin as a second language, who were very directly copying up all the Roman books they could find, and then sometimes not even looking after the originals. 
when the originals have survived, it's because they looked after those usually as well. So a lot of our <laughs> a lot of our Roman books have survived because in that period they were valued. So actually, all of our Latin's medieval Latin, with a few exceptions. There are some surviving Virgils out there. Yeah, so you always have to go through the practices of medieval Latin to encounter classical Latin, and they're actually completely wrapped up in each other. That is such a good point. I really, really like that. That's such a neat and succinct description of the debt that we owe today to medieval Latin. We have to thank these monks. They may not have had much in common with Cicero, but we owe them our knowledge of you know Cicero and Caesar et al. I think that's that's such a great point. So you know, it's something people don't think about very often, and it takes quite a lot of classical study before anyone sort of starts talking about this problem. Yeah, and when we have some texts which survive from the 12th century, and that's just because they're probably copies of books in the 9th century, which we've also lost. But if you look at the surviving numbers of books, the number of books on either side of about the year 800 increases tenfold or something. So it's quite astonishing, the sort of just body of material we have. Um, it probably decreases in the century after before it gets back up again, because there was so much work going on at the beginning of the 9th century. It's a really, really interesting cultural phenomenon. Now let's move on to the third and final question from me, which is simply, at the end of this episode with you, Charlie, what is something, what is a point that you want to leave the audience with? What's something that you really want people to know about medieval Latin? You've given us some great material, some great talking points so far, but if you were to say one thing that I can now pass on to the next person I talk to today, what would it be? Yeah, so my finishing point would be, we've spoken quite a lot about medieval Latin being very much part of the establishment in something we called Western Europe. And by that, I think everything we've said would apply to everywhere which nowadays has a large Roman Catholic population. Maybe that's a good example of what we mean by Western Europe or Protestant has a large Latin church population because they have a history of that Latin intellectual tradition. So south of the Danube, maybe people are looking more towards the Greek speaking world. By the time you get to Russia, people are more to the Greek-speaking world. In other parts of the world, people are looking to more towards the Arabic and Persian-speaking world. That wasn't the remit of Latin in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't always the remit of medieval Latin. So the Roman Empire covered all the shores of the Mediterranean. Latin was being used in all of them. Nothing really happened to most of this Roman Empire in the 5th century. So it carried on until the Arabic conquests of the 7th century. So we have a lot of Latin writing from North Africa. We have less Latin writing from the east of the Mediterranean because Greek was the standard language of writing and Greek was always more prestigious in the classical world. So that's another fun thing about medieval Latin is it's a context in which Latin gets to be prestigious. But that period where we're not sure if we're in the classical world or the Middle Ages, because actually this difference is slightly arbitrary, is a period in which much of the Latin writing activity is taking place in North Africa. A lot of it's taking place in the south of France, a lot of it's in Spain, none of it's taking place in uh, England. A little bit. <laughs> but yeah, so that's really part of the picture for medieval Latin is that this isn't exclusively a Western European language going all the way back. Also, for the people who do use it, developing into that sort of Latin intellectual tradition, they are always aware that they don't live in the center of the intellectual world because they are constantly deferring to the idea that you could get better material, better text, a better understanding of their own intellectual tradition from Africa, from the Middle East, from Greece even. And that's a big part of their mentality. It's probably well known that in the 12th century, there's a large translation movement from Arabic into Latin. 
um, filling the gaps of the books which were available in Latin. But these are gaps pointed out by the Latin tradition. So everyone reading medieval Latin thought, well, we've got some of the philosophers, but we don't have all of them. We have basically no Aristotle, and he's supposed to be really important. And they discover this in Arabic, where it's being translated from Greek and Syriac. But they know that because they're aware of their own intellectual deficiency through the body of material they read in Latin. So medieval Latin is a connection to a much wider world, and a lot of the time, a language used in a much wider world. It sounds like what you're talking about here is some kind of scholastic inferiority complex uh, that people in Britain knew that back in the days of the empire, they were a bit of a backwater. And in what is now Germany and Bohemia and everything, they weren't actually part of the empire. It sounds like they're trying to work with this deficiency and it's perhaps something even psychological. Yeah, well, and it's and that's going to tie very much into that uh, humanist movement in the 15th century, where it's suddenly acceptable to say that the moderns have started to equal the ancients, and we can now write Latin like Cicero because we're good enough. And that's coming out of Italy, where, of course, the Roman heritage is very available, but that does spread. And in Germany, that produces a, um, a strange kind of elevation of German identity, actually, in the 15th century and 16th century. People like Conrad Celtis saying, well, we should be Germans because the German Tacitus wrote about the Germans and weren't they great, but we can also speak good Latin. So that's sort of deliberately undone by the humanist movement. They're trying to say, we now don't have this, this inferiority. Rome has come back. By moving away from this kind of Latin, we are making ourselves more Roman, in their eyes at least. Yeah, and that's, that's part of the contradiction of what we call the Renaissance, is that it is in some ways the final break with an organic growth out of classical Latin, because it's the moment where there really is an effort to cultivate the kind of Latin you're learning, and that acknowledges that you think you've lost the classical tradition. The medieval world developed very organically out of the classical, and yet it's seen as some sort of aberration, some mistake that we must rectify, despite that very natural evolution. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the study of classics is becoming less prominent uh, in a lot of parts of the world right now. But a lot of these assumptions aren't showing any signs of actually giving way in people's wider consciousness. Absolutely fascinating. Amazing how we're all wrapped up still in this one empire. Uh, you know, there's such such a long-lasting cultural, historical, and linguistic legacy. And I, I think you've done a great job, a really tremendous job in unpacking that today. So um, I could talk about this forever, and this would be a very, very long podcast episode, but I think we should leave it there. Uh, I'm just going to have to have you back, I think, at uh, some point. To, you know, Medieval Latin Part 2, Anglo-Norman, whatever, your choice. But for today at least, just thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. I'll see you soon. To follow on with a final fun fact from me, I'd like to talk about a very medieval change in meaning. Yebed, or alternatively bedu, was an Old English word for prayer. In the later Middle Ages and the Middle English period, with the rise in popularity of praying the rosary, we see this word gain new meanings. It shifted from referring to prayers to the small round objects that you count prayers with. This total sense shift is behind the meaning of the modern English word, bead. That's it for another episode of A Language I Love Is. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give the show a rating and recommend it to share the linguistic love further. 
Also, if you have any feedback or requests for future episodes, feel free to get in touch. Thanks go in particular to Mr. J. Pibus of York for his constant support and his suggestion of changing the theme music to ACDC. That might turn out quite expensive, but I'm giving it due consideration. Till the next time then, bye-bye.